so grateful for who you are, for the immense love that you have for us. Lord, as we enter into this season, will you just bring your grace upon us? Guide us into a focused time of remembering just what this is all about. Praise you for the birth of your Son, Jesus Christ. And as we look now at what it means for him to have come to be with us, just enlighten us. Draw us into your presence. Open our eyes. Open our hearts. God, for those that are here this morning who are facing tremendous burdens, uh, the loss of a loved one, sickness, injury, uh, some sort of calamity, uh, financial hardship, whatever it is, we give them an opportunity, Lord, to just release all of that this morning. Come to you. Find your son in danger. God, we invite you into this season here at Chapel Hill Church. We invite you into this day, this message. Fill us and guide us. Thank you for being our Father, for being our God, for sending your Son to be our Savior. Praise you for this in Jesus' name. God was coming to earth in the form of a baby. Not just big news for the angels, this was epic news for all creation, past, present, and future. This Christmas season, our theme for this for the services is God with us. We're going to talk about the incarnation of Jesus Christ. We're going to remind ourselves that over 2,000 years ago, Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, one who had existed forever, took a step out of the perfection of heaven and into the imperfection, or let's be real, the mess of earth. The God who was eternally, who had no beginning, took a step toward his creation and became one of us. This mind-blowing reality is not a theory. It's not a fictional story to back up a particular set of religious beliefs. It's not a misinterpretation or gross exaggeration of something that happened. It is something that happened. can't explain it away. We can't wrap our minds around it. We can't fit it into any point of reference in our lives at all. We've never before experienced God becoming man. He did it once, and we weren't there to see it, but others were many, many others. The incarnation of Jesus Christ is an historical fact. It's backed up by all the other historical facts that exist. It's absolutely impossible to back up any idea that this really didn't happen it happened. The details around this epic, life-saving, earth-altering event are recorded for us in God's Word, in the Bible. God became man. God became man. The Apostle John wrote in John 1.14 that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus Christ, the very one who was there at the creation of the world, entered that world himself. Epic. And when you consider the reason he entered this world, this moves way beyond epic to something that, that, that we don't even have a word for. 
1991. I left everything that I knew in Canada, and I entered a world that was completely foreign to me. I moved to the country of Haiti. Throughout my preparation for that move, I was confronted with the term incarnational ministry over and over again. Incarnational ministry. I had all the right motives for moving to Haiti. I wanted to bring hope to the people of Haiti, the people who were suffering on every level. So I would strive to become one of them, to understand them, to communicate with them, to relate to them at the deepest level. My mind and my heart were set on becoming incarnational, just like Jesus did. That process began with me studying the language, and so I did that for the first four weeks of my time in Haiti. Those four weeks of classroom time were followed immediately by something that absolutely terrified me. I was taken up into the mountains where I'd be living long-term there, and from the small village in which I would live, I was taken on a long hike to a very remote place where one little hut sat up on a ridge overlooking a valley. I was left there by my co-workers and told that they'd be back to retrieve me in two weeks. Their parting words were, learn the language. And I'd love to say that was a super smooth and productive time. It wasn't. I lost track of the number of times I offended that poor family who had agreed to host me. And I remember wondering if they were getting paid enough to do what they were doing for me. The second night there, I had already contracted some contact with some form of, of intestinal disease. And I found myself up most of the night running out of the house frequently to use the pit, which was a very small hole in the ground that was much too small for me to hit consistently. That led to a serious discussion among the family in the morning, one that I couldn't follow along with at all. What I did understand was that I was the topic of conversation and no one was happy with the topic. Apparently, by letting myself out during the night, I had literally, literally opened the door to several evil spirits, the very ones who cause the Haitian people to live in fear once the sun goes down. That night I discovered uh, a bucket strategically placed next to my bed. The message was clear. I was going to have to live with whatever I put in the bucket for the entire night. By the fourth day, uh, the language barrier was really starting to frustrate me. Uh, it was frustrating to them even more. To my amazement during an afternoon conversation that the family was having in the shade of a tree out in their yard, I finally understood an entire sentence of what was being communicated. Uh, loosely translated, the father was expressing his frustration with me in the words that he spoke to the rest of his family. These words, even our two-year-old can speak better than this white man. That evening, I gave up on my quest to speak with the grown-ups, and I focused on the children only. <laughs> they had a son who was about seven years old. He would talk, and I would listen. He'd talk on and on, and I would have no clue what he was actually saying to me. It didn't matter. At one point, I decided I would add something to the conversation, so I slid my hand underneath my shirt and up into my armpit and demonstrated my skills at making farting noises. <laughs> that was enough. We were now friends, and I was living out my mission of incarnational ministry in the country of Haiti. Now, thankfully, the incarnation of Jesus Christ went a little more smoothly than my incarnation did. Pretty much all ours had in common was the desire that led to the mission. But even at that, Christ's mission was part of a much, much bigger picture. And so in order to better understand Christ's mission, we need to go back to the beginning or even before 
the beginning. I really do want us to better understand the incarnation of Jesus Christ as we enter into this Christmas season. This season ought to be a time of deep, genuine, personal, and corporate praise for us as God's family. God became one of us. God became one of us. Why would he do that? And what was he hoping to accomplish by becoming a man? Did he really have to become a man? Those are some of the things I want to look at with you over the next few weeks. Like I said, let's start with God and his desire from the beginning of time. At some point, God began to unleash his creativity on a very specific project. He created something, a lot, out of nothing. He created the heavens and the earth. The heavens included all the planets, the stars and galaxies and all that, hundreds of billions of galaxies, each with hundreds of billions of stars in them. He could easily have stopped there, and his creativity would have been praised by the angels for eternity. But he didn't stop. He focused on this one planet, and he turned his creative energy to seas and continents and mountains and rivers, and that alone would have been eternally praiseworthy, but he didn't stop there, did he? God's creativity led him to create life on this planet. Animals, birds, fish, plants, trees, and every living creature that exists on land, in the sky, or under the water, all created by him. Each creation beautiful in its own right. Each creation unique. Each creation alive. Some even had personalities and could eventually be taught to do things using their basic motor skills. But still, God was not satisfied with what he had created. Why not? God's desire just to create. No, there was something more that he was looking for, so he took his creativity up to a level only slightly lower than the angels. He created man and woman. He created people. Why would he do that? Plants and animals would have been far less disappointing over the centuries to come. But God went ahead and he created man and woman. It appears that David, the psalmist, had similar thoughts at one point in his life. This is what he wrote in Psalm 8, verses 3 to 5. He wrote, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. God created man. He wanted to be with man. He wanted to be with man. He created us to be with him. He created us for fellowship, for relationship. He created us to be family. And he has always wanted to be with us. That's God's desire. And so he created Adam and Eve and lived in relationship with them in the Garden of Eden. Mankind has always been God's favorite and most valued creation. He has crowned us with glory and honor in creating us to be his family, his children, his companions forever. God's desire has always been to be with us. What is our desire then? Humans were created with free will, a generous gift from our creator. He didn't want puppets. He wanted a family. He wanted us to choose him, to choose to be with him. So how did that work out? 
Passover lamb. From the very first temptation, mankind made it clear that our desire does not naturally line up with God's. From the start, man was vulnerable to temptation, and faced with the first temptation ever, mankind, mankind chose independence, not God. Adam and Eve chose to disobey God, and by doing so, to claim their independence from their Creator, from the one who had created them to be with Him. Now put that act up against God's desire. God desired to be with His creation. His creation desired independence. God desired family. Man desired individualism. And I would imagine man's desire broke God's heart and thought that he never did. Because of sin, because of disobedience, God's family was broken. God lost the fellowship he once had with his greatest joy, his family. We ran. We left God our Father. And in spite of how hard this must have been for him, God immediately set in motion a plan to restore things back to his original desire. God had a plan. And at the heart of his plan was an invitation. It was an invitation filled with grace and love. It was an invitation to mankind to come back to him. God still desired to be with man in spite of man's desire for independence. And so he said, <clears throat> through his restoration plan, come home. Come home. God pursued the creatures who had left him, and he went to great lengths to get the message of come home to his creation. This pursuit is seen throughout the Bible story. God began speaking through prophets to get his message across to his creation. They spoke to God's people on God's behalf. The message was clear. The things that separated man from God had to be dealt with. And God's pursuit through the prophets continued for a long, long time. God was not going to give up on his creation and his desire to be with them. During his time here on earth, Jesus spoke of this plan that included the prophets and how mankind responded to that plan. Our resistance continued. In Matthew chapter 21, Jesus told a parable about the owner of a vineyard and the story of what happened when that owner went away. He told of his servants who he sent back to that vineyard to collect the harvest. But those servants were beaten, killed, stoned, and the owner of the vineyard sent his own son, and he too was killed. There's no mistaking the fact that Jesus was talking about the prophets God had sent, and then he was talking about himself, God's own son. God had faithfully reached out to mankind to invite them to come home and be restored into relationship with their father, but they refused even to the point of killing his son. Those who were listening to Jesus as he told them this parable did not know what was coming. They would soon crucify God's Son who had been sent to invite them to come home. Man resisted in spite of the repeated messages from God, stating that he was not giving up on his family. They couldn't see beyond their desire for independence. So their response to God was once again, leave us alone. Just leave us alone. Jesus would speak often of God's desire to restore his family. He would tell parables about a lost coin, a lost sheep, a lost son, all pointing to the desire of his father to see his family restored. Through centuries of sending messages and prophets to speak those messages, God remained faithful to his restoration plan. He would not give up. He promised that there would not be another flood. He promised that there was one who would come to
to save his family and bring them back to him. And God was faithful to every one of those promises. The prophet Isaiah spoke clearly of the one who would come. Read through the book of Isaiah if you haven't for a while or if you've never done it. Listen to God's faithfulness poured out on the pages of Isaiah. God had a plan and he would be faithful in fulfilling that plan. In Isaiah chapter 9, you'll read about God's plan. You'll read about the one who was to come, the son of the owner of the vineyard. Hundreds of years in advance, God speaks through his prophet of his plan. This is Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Isaiah, of course, was talking about the coming of Jesus, the fulfillment of God's plan. This incredible plan of Jesus becoming man would show us just how much God loves us. He was sending His only Son. His plan was to have His Son leave the security and bliss of heaven and enter the world as a man, and not just as a man, but as a baby boy, to experience the fullness of what it was to be one of us. Because of man's disobedience and desire for independence, man could no longer return to God on his own. There was nothing we could do to restore the fellowship that once existed between God and man. The only hope that was left was the hope that God could restore his family by coming to us. So that's what he did. He came to us. He came to us because he desired to be with us. This was the depth of his love for us. But why this way? Why this way? Why would Jesus have to leave heaven and come to us here? This would be something new for Jesus, obviously. He had never known anything but the security and perfection of heaven. Why step out of that? There had to be some deep significance to the act of him coming here and becoming one of us. This was going to cost him dearly. Jesus, who was fully God, was going to become fully man. He never gave up his identity as fully God. I read a quote that summed this reality up rather well. There was only addition in his act, no subtraction. It's kind of homework my boys wish they had. Just addition, no subtraction. Jesus remained fully God and added to that identity, becoming fully man. Here's something I've rarely considered. This was not a temporary change. This was a permanent reality for Jesus. He would now, now always be fully God and fully man. He didn't just swap out one for another for a brief time. Jesus became one of us and is still one of us. So let's look for a few minutes at what this all accomplished. Why did Jesus accomplish his mission through incarnation? There are several reasons. Through his generous incarnation, Jesus represented us to his Father in more than one way. God had made a covenant with man. He had made several covenants with man. Man's part in that covenant was to be obedient to our Creator. This is something we have never done well. Through our disobedience to God, our desire for independence, we have broken that covenant over and over and over again. 
Romans 5, 18 to 19 says this, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, that's Christ, the many will be made righteous. This is why Adam's referred to as the first man, and Christ is referred to as the last Adam or second man. Jesus had to become a man in order to obey in our place. He responded to the covenant for us. Another way in which Jesus took our place by coming to be one of us was the way in which he became our replacement sacrifice. Jesus could not have died in our place if he was not one of us. So he became one of us and he took our place. How loving is that? In Hebrews 2, we read about God's concern for us, that he desired to help us. It even sets us up against the angels, noting that it was us, not the angels, whom God desired to help. And so he had to make, he had to be made like us in every respect. Taking our place on the cross, Jesus had to become one of us. Another reason for Jesus becoming one of us is spoken of in 1 Timothy 2.5. This is what Paul writes there. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Because we broke the covenant with God and chose independence, we have always been in need of someone to come between us and God to stand in the gap and advocate for us. There is only one who could do that, and the one has to be both fully God and fully man in order to be the mediator that's needed to bring us back together. And so Jesus became that mediator by becoming one of us. If we go back to the beginning again and look at that original covenant God made with us, we'll see another reason why Jesus became one of us. Adam and Eve were commanded by God to rule over the world that God had created as his representatives. But Adam and Eve did not fulfill that purpose. So Jesus came as a man to reestablish man's rule over creation, and he will establish that rule forever in his time. Meanwhile, he told us that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Based on that authority, what does he want us to do? He wants us to join him as our fellow man and leader of mankind in bringing hope to the world and carrying out God's desire to be with man, to have his family restored. And then, of course, Jesus had to become a man in order to give us an example of what a human's life is to look like. 1 John 2.6 says, Whoever says he abides in him, in Christ, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And our independence from God, our lives amount to, to very little of eternal value. So Jesus came to show us the way to live. That's the process that needs to be happening in our lives. We are to be following in Jesus' footsteps in the way that we live our lives. What mattered to him ought to matter to us. His priorities ought to be our priorities. His values ought to be our values. His mind ought to be our mind. But he couldn't show us what all that might look like if he hadn't come as a man. 
We need it as an example. It's life. And let's be very careful as a church, as a group of those who, who truly follow Jesus, to not pick and choose which characteristics of Christ's life we're going to follow. Peter wrote about this very clearly in 1 Peter 2.21. He wrote, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Even the suffering of Jesus is something we have to consider if we're going to truly follow the example that Jesus gave us by becoming one of us. Jesus not only set an example of what our lives ought to be like, he also demonstrated for us what our resurrected bodies are going to be like. And he could not have done this without becoming one of us. Jesus became the first fruit, the prototype of what it would look like to be raised from the dead and receive our eternal bodies, the ones that we're going to receive one day. The writer of Hebrews also reminds us that Jesus became a sympathetic high priest for us because he became one of us. He can now help us having become one of us because of the things that he experienced in his own life, like temptation and hunger and sorrow and so on. For these reasons and more, Jesus became one of us. He came to us and walked the earth for a while, just like we do. God with us. God with us. God came to be with us, to take our place, to equip himself to mediate for us, to rule over creation and respond the right way to God's covenant with man, to demonstrate life for us, to show us how to live, to show us what's important to him. And in doing so, Jesus showed us his Father's heart. He showed us what the heart of God's like. Jesus showed us that God's motivation in sending his Son was his deep, unconditional love for you. Jesus himself said in John 3.16 that God loved us so much that he sent his only son to become one of us. Can you see the Father's heart in all this? Can you see God's heart in the incarnation of Jesus Christ? God's desire was always to be with us. When that fellowship was broken and we refused to come home, God pursued us, inviting us to join him again. In his plan to pursue us and call us home, God included his only son becoming a man, fully God and fully man, all for the sake of restoring our relationship with him, restoring his family to the way he desires it to be. How thankful are you that God came to be with us? What's your response to what God has done in sending his son to become one? To what degree have you simply taken that generous, loving, epic act for granted? God has always desired to be with us. Imperfect, messed up, inconsiderate, ungrateful us. God wants to be with you. He wants to be with me. Restoring that union with God was not easy. It was not cheap. But God wanted his plan to be fulfilled no matter what it cost him and what it cost his son. That's what he brings to the table. What about us? What do we bring? The incarnation of Jesus Christ is a crystal clear demonstration of God's love for us. How do we respond to that? Let me give you somewhere to start. Love him back. Love him back. 
Accept the deep, deep love that He has for you and love Him back with everything you've got. He deserves that kind of love for us. God came to us to be with us. He came to us to be with us. Are you aware every minute of every day that we are now with our Father as a result of the incarnation of Jesus Christ? That presence, that reunion, purchased for us by Jesus Christ, our brother, the one who came to become one of us and paid the price to see this family restored. Praise Him for that. Make Him the ultimate object of your affection, praise, and thanksgiving. That's how much God loves us. And then take your response to the next level. We've just reflected on the heart of God and His motive behind it the incarnation of His Son, Jesus Christ. His desire is to be with His creation. That should mean something to us. We've been drawing closer this morning to, to the heart of our Father. Seeing it so clearly now, there's only one more response that we need to make. And this goes beyond us. As we've said, our Father wants to restore His family. He wants to be with His creation. But how will they This Christmas season, let your Father's heart be reflected in you. Praise Him, thank Him, love Him, obey Him, and join Him in His desire to see His family restored. Tell someone who may not know just how much God wants to be with them. Tell them that Jesus came for them. That's what this Christmas thing is all about. God. the ushers of God come now. Worship team to come. Prepare to close this service. Let's pray as they do. Well, you know that we do this Christmas thing every year. 49th time doing it. We come back to the same story over and over and over and over again. And it never ceases to amaze me. It is hard to believe, Father, that you would love us so much. deserve this. We're the ones who choose independence day in and day out. We're the ones who can often go through an entire day without even acknowledging the fact that you're there. But you are here. Your son became not just fully God, but fully man as well. Is still This is not a story. 
this wasn't written in some children's book. And yet this is our reality. That you love us so much. That you send your son accomplish the mission of bringing us back together this week. God, please don't let us go through this Christmas season without increasing our awareness of the fact that we've been restored to fellowship with you. Help us to remember the fact that there are millions and billions of people out there that are still lost. Help us in deep gratitude and for what you've done for us to realize that you want to do that for everyone. You've called us in a mission of declaring that good news that God has come to earth, that God is with us to restore the relationship we were created to have with you. Father, I ask for your blessing on this Christmas season that we would keep that focus, that we would stay right there, right at the manger to see just how much you love us. And we would take that gratitude and that praise and turn it into action and be used by you to remind someone else of just how much you want to be with them. Thank you for coming to us. Thank you for saving us and for restoring us into your Thank you.